Kelly Hill, Executive Editor of RCR Wireless News. There's already devices that have CBRS support. There's already a pretty healthy amount of interest on the infrastructure side, and that's already commercially available. It's really sort of a different scenario than what we've seen with Spectrum auctions before. I'm Catherine Speglia, and this is Well Technically, the tech podcast where women do the explaining. Kelly, thanks so much for agreeing to do this and for being the first woman in tech journalism on the podcast. Ooh, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, a big part of starting this podcast was that I wanted to make sure I spoke to women from all different areas of tech, not just CEOs and execs, because I think everyone from every level of the industry has incredible insight to offer. So I'm really excited to speak more in depth with you about CBRS, because I know you've been covering that a lot lately. Oh, yeah, definitely. But before we get into that, I wanted to start by asking you the same question I've been asking everybody who comes onto my podcast, which is, What's an example of a time in which being a woman empowered you? So I actually had, I I have kind of a hard time with this question because I think when I think about the times when I've felt empowered, it's really had to do more with sort of, I I think more with my level of experience and, um, and sort of, you know, what I've been able to draw on, you know, I, I mean, I think about the times when I'm in interviews and somebody seems really um, impressed or even maybe a little surprised at a question because um, A, I've done my homework <laughs> and B, I, I know the industry really well. But then I think about, um, you know, so, okay, you know, folks, um, you know, being a little surprised or maybe impressed by a level of expertise. And sometimes I think, oh, well, anybody would feel that way, you know, regardless of gender. But then I think there aren't necessarily a ton of women who are in the position to ask those questions and to have that level of expertise. And so, you know, I think in some ways it does sort of, um, you know, come back to what people's expectations are maybe around, um, you know, women in tech. Yeah. I was going to ask if you felt their surprise originated from the fact that you were a journalist or a woman. <laughs> you know, I think it's probably a little bit of both, to be fair, because there are plenty of journalists who don't do their homework. Okay, the next question I've only asked a few times on this podcast, but I'm particularly interested in, in hearing your answer because, you know, we both work together, so I know you pretty well. Uh, so what is your favorite piece of technology? So, okay, piece of technology, you mean like hardware or just anything, like anything that is technology, technically? Anything. Okay. So I have to say that as a child of the 80s, um, streaming entertainment is my absolute favorite advance in the world. Be- being able to do asynchronous TV watching, like I don't have to miss an episode. I don't have to be home at this particular time. I don't miss My Little Pony at 7.30 a.m. because I have to go to school. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, those were, that was like the bane of my childhood was that I never got to watch the stuff that I really wanted to watch because either my parents were watching something or I wasn't home. That's a good answer. Do your kids still fight over TV? Like, you know, like 
you did in the 80s and I did in the 90s. You know, I have all these memories that are now flooding back to me of like fighting, like physically fighting (laughs) with my brother about who could have the remote. And now, of course, there's still probably some of that, but the risk isn't as high. You don't like completely miss your show. So do your kids still fight about what what to watch and when to watch? (laughs) No, they generally don't. They're very like accustomed to binge watching. We just subscribed to Disney Plus a few weeks ago. And so we're starting to sort of work our way through things. And right now their current favorite show is Marvel's The Runaways. There's not a sense of urgency for them, I think, because they know it's there whenever they want it. As much as I could talk about television and movies like all day, you are here to talk to me about CBRS. which you've been covering extensively. First, can you give me a brief intro to CBRS? You know, what is it? Why does it matter? That sort of thing, kind of high level. Okay, sure. So CBRS stands for Citizens Broadband Radio Service. And that is 150 megahertz of spectrum at 3.5 gigahertz. It's nice mid-band spectrum, which is highly in demand for 5G. Um, And it's near a lot of other bands that are being used around the world for 5G services. So it's really the first mid-band spectrum that the U.S. has made available. And this spectrum has been sort of in process for a really long time. Uh, And there have been a lot of regulatory delays around it. I think mostly because it's a novel spectrum sharing framework that's being used. So there's three tiers of of CBRS access. You have incumbents, which include things like uh, shipborne naval radars, um, some wireless internet service providers, and a few other... a few other uh, folks operating in that band who have been there for a while. Then you have um, priority access license holders. And uh, that auction is going on now with the FCC um, and just hit 1.6 billion in bids raised. Um, There will be seven priority access licenses per county uh, in the country, which is a totally different way that, uh, totally different um, level of, small licenses that the FCC has never done before. Uh, And then the third tier of access uh, for sharing the spectrum is general authorized access, where basically you have to have a device registered with a SAS. But other than that, it's more or less like Wi-Fi, where you don't really pay for the spectrum access. You don't pay for the spectrum anyway. Um, And so those are the three tiers of sharing. And it's really... um, it's the first time this has been done in this way. Uh, it's it's really, uh, I think people are hoping that it sets a precedent for how federal users can share more spectrum because so much of the airwaves in the U.S. Um, have federal users in them somewhere and they can be, um, it, it can be a real challenge to figure out where to move them. So if more of those bands can be shared, then that makes more spectrum available for commercial use. All right. You mentioned that the auctions are underway, and I definitely want to get into that uh, more with you. But before we do that, I've heard that CBRS may be a solution to some of our rural coverage problems. And I wanted to ask you how you envision that working. So I think when it comes to rural coverage, there's always sort of the gap between what is possible and what actually ends up playing out. Uh, And that has a lot to do with ROI on whether or not people will actually build out those networks. Um, So I think in the case of CBRS, though, it presents some, 
some really interesting possibilities. And I think in some ways we're already seeing that play out. So you have AT&T that set up a big um, pilot network in, I want to say Ohio, maybe parts of Tennessee. Um, And this was a CBRS network and they were going to use it to meet their build out obligations under the Connect America Fund, um, which was a program from the FCC to fund um, rural broadband access. So you have you have that going on and that used CBRS. And then in the auction, what you're seeing is um, electric utilities and uh, and WISPs participate. And um, I've had a couple of people tell me, you know, that really this is the first time that some of the folks like the WISPs have a chance to get their hands on spectrum that is theirs, even though it's shared. Um, you know, typically spectrum licenses cover a very large area and they're competing with like AT&T and Verizon for these vast geographic areas and it's really hard for them to compete. So some of these folks are getting going to be able to get spectrum at the county level for the very first time. And I think that raises the chances of them being able to build out more robust networks, faster networks, and, you know, and networks that, that cover more area simply because they won't be relying on, uh, on unlicensed access. Um, and there's already a pretty robust device and equipment ecosystem waiting for them. Okay. And another use case I've been hearing a lot about is in industrial applications like robotics and automation. What's your perspective on that? So that is an interesting one. Um, So the use cases that we're seeing drive these early deployments are um, capacity augmentation for sort of the traditional mobile network operators. Um, You know, the the AT&Ts and T-Mobiles and Verizons of the world. I don't know exactly, I don't know, I don't know if all of them are using that in exactly the same way, but um, you know, those are capacity augmentation is is driving some of this. Um, The other uh, early application that's building this uh, are from the WISPs because they're already operating. Some of them are already operating in the spectrum. And so, you know, this really is a chance for them to uh, augment their operations. And both of those categories of CBRS deployers um, already have they already know what it takes to build a wireless network. They already have the engineers. You know, they're they're used to this. The industrial uses a lot of those folks. Um, you know, they may have Wi-Fi networks. They may have various types of of wireless networks, but they haven't necessarily built a cellular network from the ground up. And so, those are sort of expected to be a little bit further down the pike. There is a lot of interest, though. So, I talked to a company um, for a recent CBRS report called Keychain, and they built a couple of CBRS networks at the Port of Long Beach and the Port of Los Angeles in California. And basically, those networks were for enterprise customers who operate at the port um, who are looking to, to, you know, have mobile connectivity in an area that doesn't really have uh, very good coverage at this point, has a lot of sort of tricky RF things with all of the metal containers, but they need to do things like, you know, track containers, um, you know, know where everything is, you know, there's the potential for, um, you know, sort of automated vehicles um, or, uh, you know, not necessarily immediately, but um, when you think about ports and mining, you know, one of the things that they often want to connect are um, or vehicles and particularly in the mining context, um, you know, those may be things like 
trucks that sort of shuttle things around, but um, they go really slow and they kind of drive themselves. Um, so I, I do think that, that there's some possibilities there. Um, I, I think it's still really early. And I think the other thing that's related is that, you know, um, they, they usually have Wi-Fi networks. But right. when you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of acres, dropping hundreds and hundreds of Wi-Fi, AP, Wi-Fi APs, is it's really hard to design a, uh, a really good Wi-Fi network, especially in a, an environment like an outdoor port where the, all the networks in the area are competing for the same spectrum. And so for the folks like that in that very specific area, you know, it totally makes sense that a private network in dedicated spectrum, you know, is going to be of interest to them. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we talked about the two use cases I have been most interested in, but what are some other prominent uses you see emerging for this spectrum? And maybe who do you think will find the most value out of it? In terms of getting value out of it, I I, I sort of have a feeling that the WISPs are probably going to be the ones who really can take advantage of that because they already know what they're doing. They're they're operating in... um, in some cases in the band already, uh, you know, and they need to transition um, from operating uh, under part 90 to part 96. There's some, you know, details in that. Uh, But they really have a chance to expand their spectrum portfolio for the first time. And this, the county level licensing is really going to enable them to do that. So um, I I wouldn't be surprised to see that this actually makes a pretty big difference um, for, for wireless internet service providers. In terms of other use cases, it's a little difficult to say, but I think you know you can draw some interesting conclusions from looking at the list of qualified bidders. So there's 271, which the last three auctions had 40 or fewer qualified bidders. So this is really a much bigger slice of sort of the enterprise ecosystem. And what you see in that is you see a few universities, um, you see Starwood Holdings, which is a hotel chain, um, and you see Chevron, and you see uh, Deere and Company, so John Deere. So, you know, so you sort of extrapolate out what those folks are likely to be interested in, you know, private networks for, you know, hotels, for universities, um, you know, whether that's student facing or whether that's, you know, for their own operations, you know, I don't I don't know exactly how that'll play out. But um, then sort of the industrial use cases, the the oil and gas and uh, and the industrial agriculture, um, you know, so it'll be really interesting to see, one, how they come out of this auction and where they actually end up winning Spectrum and where, you know, and where they manage to win it. Um, and then what they end up doing with it over the 10-year period of the license. Was it a CBRS bidders list that we were looking at that just had like a woman named Lisa on it? Yep. Okay, so how, yeah, so how much of that are you really seeing? And do you have any idea of what their intention could be? There are some individuals who are who are, who are bidding, and I'm not quite sure what's going on there, but I did do a little bit of Googling on a couple of the names. And one of the guys who was, I'm not sure if he made it onto the final qualified bidders list, and I'm pretty sure he didn't, but he ran an educational nonprofit and so um, I, I think it was probably with the intent to build out, you know, in within a county, you know, some type of wireless network to support the local schools. 
Um, so that was the one thing, um, you know, where there, there may be an individual who's associated with, um, you know, who's, who's trying to get on, in on some spectrum, which, you know, for a thousand bucks in, in some counties, you, you know, you could get a spectrum license. Yeah, I think it'll be really fascinating to see what some people can do, even just an individual can do with having a slice of spectrum. I know Sean and I joked about me tracking Lisa down and writing a story on it and how it might bring no worthwhile discussion to the to the community, but would be a fun story. I never did that. Probably should have. Maybe once the bidding is over, she can actually talk to you. The FCC quiet period um, limits a lot of what these folks can talk about right now. That's fair. As you mentioned earlier, the auctions are underway. And I wanted to ask you if there are any surprises about how things are kind of shaking out. So I think the first thing that was a surprise was the number of bidders. The FCC got over 300 applications and ended up with 271 qualified bidders. And I sort of mentioned that, you know, that's way more than they've seen than they see typically. Electric utilities, you know, rural electric co-ops and all these other folks, you know, bidding for the spectrum. And just as an aside, you don't have to own a priority access license in order to access the spectrum. You can still access it under general authorized, under GAA, general authorized access, even if you don't have a PAL. So these folks who are bidding are just sort of the tip of the iceberg of the folks who could potentially, you know, use that spectrum. So, so I think just that level of interest um, and from a wide variety of players, you know, makes it sort of an interesting auction all on its own. You know, I think the other thing is that really this process that the FCC has gone through and sort of industry has gone through and putting all of this together, it sort of flipped the usual process on its head. The way this usually works is that the FCC decides to auction spectrum and they auction the spectrum and then there's a period of time where that spectrum has to be cleared and everybody who's using it has to move their operations. And, you know, so it's an expensive and sort of time consuming process to make the spectrum ready to use. And there's usually a lag between the close of the auction and when people can actually use it because on top of the clearing process, the carriers have to go to the chip makers and they have to go to the device makers and they have to say, okay, now we need the spectrum band to be supported. And can you put it in this device in like a year? And, you know, eventually they, you know, something works out um, to the satisfaction of both sides, et cetera, et cetera. And really what you're seeing um, is, is because the FCC has required the development of the ecosystem beforehand for testing purposes and let's make sure everything works. Um, and because of that general authorized access piece where you could, you would always be able to access the spectrum, whether or not you had a license. Um, There's already devices, including, you know, flagship smartphones that have CBRS support. There's already um, a pretty healthy amount of of interest on the um, infrastructure side, and that's already commercially available. And so we have this we have commercial operations in this band, even though the spectrum is only is being auctioned now. Um, so that's, it, it's really a different, um, it's really a, sort of a different scenario than what we've seen with spectrum auctions before. Yeah. So in some of your coverage, you referred to an unusual bidding pattern. Is that what you meant or was there more to what you meant by that? So I've been covering spectrum auctions for a long time. I actually don't remember the first <laughs> what the first one was that I covered, but uh, it was a while, it was a long time ago. And 
I don't think I've seen anything that has quite this bidding pattern. So usually how it starts out is, you know, everybody bids for the, uh, you know, the major metropolitan licenses and everybody wants to get that spectrum in New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, you know, the big major metro areas. And then once they figure out how much those licenses are going to cost them, then they start worrying about the mid-tier cities. And then at the very end, when everybody's kind of in cleanup mode, they sort of snap up all the little rural areas that they're interested in. There's always a few licenses left at the end that nobody really wants, which means those areas don't get built out ever, at least, you know, in the, unless the FCC reactions them later, which doesn't really happen very often. So with this, what we're seeing is because there's those 271 bidders and because the geographic areas of the licenses are small and they're less expensive, you're seeing folks who are very, very interested and really, really want spectrum in Calhoun County. God, where was it? It was either Iowa or Texas. Like after round one, (laughs) you know, you see these weird little blips where these counties with, you know, 13,000, 7,000, 15,000, 20,000 people have 10, 12 or more people bidding for Spectrum and they want those seven pals and they are, it doesn't mean the prices are very high, but the bidding, the, the, the demand for the licenses, there's a lot of people competing for them. Um, we've seen that drop off a little bit as the auction has gone on, I think probably because people have kind of settled on the prices that they're willing to pay for those. And presumably those are some of the smaller bidders and, you know, they don't necessarily have deep pockets. So Calhoun County is never going to cost you as much as Los Angeles County. But the demand in some cases for some of those small counties is comparable. As I said, we've seen that drop off a little bit. Now it's really concentrated in a lot more of sort of the the mid-sized markets and the larger markets, I think as of the end of round 23, but there's a, a pretty good variety in the sizes of places that folks are interested in and, and heavily competing for. And that's unusual when it comes to spectrum auctions. All right, Kelly. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me more about CBRS because since we work together and since you cover it, I haven't been. And so (laughs) it was definitely a gap, I think, in in my knowledge a little bit. So I appreciate you giving me, you know, some insight into that, particularly your insight, which I think is very valuable and for updating me on the on the ongoing auction. Thanks, Kat. It was fun to be here. Well, Technically is an Arden Media production. For advertising inquiries, contact Danny Miller at dmiller at ardenmedia.com. Today's show was produced and edited by me, Catherine Speglia.